Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and that means this is an all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming, Classics, and more. You can check the show out at xsforpodcast.com and X's for Podcast on Twitter, and you can find me at Nico Action, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, on Twitter and Instagram. And we're going to take a look at some amazing books later on today. We have an incredible examination of Axe, Star Fox, and I am so excited to bring that to you. We're also going to continue our cross look at Daredevil, Punisher, and Ghost Rider and the way those titles work together. But I need to step outside of the realm of the books themselves for like one second and just have a moment because the minute I saw that Marvel Puzzle Quest is doing a big dupe thing, I was out of my fucking mind with excitement. So for those who don't understand or maybe just don't know, dupe is a character created by Pete Milligan and Mike Allred for the incredible X-Force Ecstatics. Now this kicked off in X-Force number 116 way back in July of 2001. Now, this book really pushed the way the books interacted with the media machine and how the media machine kind of controlled the perception. Ultimately, the book would be hyper-influential. Dupe would get his own miniseries and crossovers with Wolverine and would appear in the follow-up series to X-Force Ecstatics and Ecstatics Presents Dead Girl Back from the Dead with Excellent 1 through 5. Now, Excellent 1 through 5 ran in 2022, and it had been a long time coming. We'd heard about, you know, uh, traces of it, especially when we got the incredible giant size ecstatics way back. I mean, way back, really, all things considered. But way back in September of 2019, it kind of felt like an eternity between the two titles. And, you know, knowing that this is going to be like a rolling thing where we're going to get another season of this same idea. It's pretty safe to say that the book that gave birth to Dupe has gone on to see a pretty phenomenal legacy. Dupe himself was kind of the breakout character from this run. Dupe is uh, like, kind of like an ectomorphic green blob and he looks I guess kind of like, like a super scary toxic slimer, but he's so much more than that and while he didn't get exactly the level of play I would have liked, ultimately in Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men, one of my absolute favorite runs of any Marvel comic ever, he got an incredible spotlight alongside an unbelievable spotlight issue with Wolverine and the X-Men 17. Such an iconic cover with Wolverine in the Logan, with Wolverine in the Logan suit, with Dupe in the Wolverine costume, right? Now, Dupe would go on to continue appearing throughout the Marvel Universe and the aforementioned all-new Dupe miniseries tied into the Battle of the Atom miniseries. So there's some really interesting stuff there that creates kind of a cross-read, though from this point of view and from this period in perspective, while I recognize that one of the things that Dupe serves as a character is to help saturate the more expected elements of the Marvel Universe or maybe even some of the sillier things that you don't expect to go the way they go. It did very much feel like the immediate satirization of Battle of the Atom in All New Dupe was kind of like Marvel maybe trying to have their event and then poke fun at it too and just a little too on the heels. Now, I personally do think All New Dupe is a fascinating miniseries and it does a lot of really interesting things for the character. And while I am always 
always an enormous Mike Allred fan and would prefer to see him on all of these appearances. The David LaFuente art is just incredible. And seeing that Laura Allred returned to continue her stable line of character defining colors, really an element that I appreciated adding to the series. And Dupe not only has had this incredible run of titles over the years, but he's appeared in two of the issues of Axe Judgment Day. And Dupe has an unbelievable number of abilities. And when I say that he's like Phoenix powerful, I guess I'm a little bit joking, but I'm a little bit not joking. It's so many abilities. He has genius level intellect and psionic abilities. He's possibly omniscient. He can fly. Obviously, he's always levitating around. They list one of his powers as cohesion, that he can sort of shapeshift his gelatinous form. Superhuman strength, durability, accelerated regenerative factor, can resurrect himself, can create dimensional gates. He has energy projection, travel across the margins. He can just sort of like step through the fourth wall. There is so much to this character that is sort of funny and playful because he's so powerful. But one of his earliest appearances uh, mentions that he is constantly in horrendous pain and it needs to be medically cared for at all times. There is even a translation guide for the fact that Dupe does not speak in regular characters. He only speaks in, uh, you know, the Dupe translation alphabet. And we at one point received a character named Dap. And I was so obsessed with this when it happened back in Pete Milligan's X-Men. And this whole Dap thing was incredible. Maybe someday we'll do an entire special on Dupe, Dap, and Pood because now we have Pood over in the Excellent. But anyway, he really is one of the wackier things about the X-Men, right? He is this floating green blob and he's amazing. It's an element of surrealism that we just don't have as much in the X-Books and seeing him thrive when he's one of my favorite characters and I have just so long been a fan, you know, there's a, a statue, a hero clicks, a Marvel Legends Deadpool figure accessory. There's a handful of dupe things over the years and he's just so terrific. And so anyway, I just wanted to take a little time to say it's really amazing that the Marvel Puzzle Quest would go out of their way to include such a phenomenal fucking character that just doesn't get anywhere near the respect he should get. So thanks, Marvel Puzzle Quest. I think you're awesome. Now let's talk some books. Star Fox has been a really surprising thing to reintegrate into the Marvel Universe. And so I knew we had to talk about it. And this Star Fox Axe special definitely generated some amazing conversation. After that, we're going to continue our look at Daredevil Punisher Ghost Rider. And we came to some really interesting conclusions that were maybe not what we expected when we started this project. Now, as always, we love making this show for you. And don't forget, you can find out more about the show over at X's for Podcast on Twitter and X's for Podcast.com. Today, we are talking about Axe Judgment Day, Star Fox. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at Desiree Away. That's like Desler in the Age of Apocalypse on Twitter. Hey, everyone. I'm Jake, and you can find me hanging out with Star Fox at the end, keeping you company at Twitter at Omega Sentinel, OH Mega Sentinel. That's me. Hello, it's me, Steve, and my pronouns are they and them. You can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at X Nate X Gray 
sex, and we hope you survive this experience. Unlike, I'm gonna say it, unlike that poor human dude who just straight up died with Star Fox right there to comfort him at the end. Oh, oh that was oh. such a real that moment. I was like, oh. it's very real. It's a very real moment, and we should definitely get into it. That may be emblematic of my theme going through this, which is I saw what they were going for, and it might just be me and my cold dead heart, but I did not feel a lot of the emotions for this one that I could clearly see were there. I just, I don't know that I felt it for this character in this book at this time. I'm with maybe, you on that. Maybe you were being emotionally manipulated by another empath. Very possible. Ooh. Maybe it was empath. Maybe it was oh. empath. Maybe empath made me so cynical about this character who has <laughs> never been a character I've enjoyed, but very much is being repositioned here into somebody I can I can like. That's an important conversation to have with this issue. What is all of y'all's relationship to Star Fox going into this issue? I gotta say, for me, Star Fox uh, always has been a campy hero that's always borderline on on cringy and you know like somebody who i was you i never really trusted because i didn't really trust how he was going to use his powers on people you know his dealings with she hulk his time in the avengers that's what i'm most familiar with but i'm learning to accept this repositioning of the character but i'm, I'm not there yet he's the kind of guy that everybody knows in real life i feel like who is extremely attractive extremely confident just has this magnetism and allure to them and is positioned as like a good or respectable figure but is the kind of person who absolutely can take advantage of people's trust in him or people's obsession with him people's like for him in really gross ways and is very aware of that like i've known people like that in real life there are people like that in the entertainment world that we can all point to who are you know people you could say like well we never expected these allegations to come out because they were so attractive and confident and fun and like just everybody was like I just really like this person you know and it's like yeah that's part of the danger is the allure and the charm of a person it can be used for manipulation and I've always seen Eros as that kind of figure this is like a completely new character to me I don't know if this is a Star Fox that we've ever seen before I'm not a huge Star Fox fan I'm quite the opposite in fact but this character I'm willing to accept as like the new version of Star Fox especially since he died and came back in the exclusion and apparently had some time to think this doesn't feel to me like the same character it feels like an attempt to save a garbage character which i'm all for if that's what's going on so i love star fox i played star fox on the snes i played star fox 64 i even played the one with all those weird ground the like the ground ships and stuff but i guess we're not talking about that star fox because we're talking about i mean that star fox is great he's got a tail he's got animal friends it's awesome there's like betrayal in the next generation it's so good it's so good but my impression of star fox first besides like the name confusion which always i never i never really got the name and it was a point of like just i i don't even want to approach it for a long time until i figured out okay this is the guy with the like foxy ear hair who has emotional manipulation powers and can fly and is thanos's brother for some reason even though they have zero family resemblance okay okay got my head wrapped around that the thing that i never like about never liked about this particular character is that he was always kind of presented as like the god of love or like the whatever of love and it always came across as kind of like one of those those guys who writes the books that you can get on Amazon and like how to like how to flirt 
flirt and get women 100% of the time. Like very, very cringe. So I I have very little relationship with Star Fox. I mean, I think we all kind of had these characters from when we were growing up reading comic books that we were aware of that like they're probably somebody's favorite that you know, but they're not yours. You don't really pay attention to them. And, you know, I feel like Star Fox for me really started coming up when he was being put on on trial for essentially coercive sex crimes as well he should be and we kind of evolved from that into dealing with Eros versus Thanos and that's all interesting stuff to me but it's just not stuff that I have read a lot of and going into the Eternals run that we all did together and the coverage that we did I really loved a lot of the stuff in Gillen's Eternals about Mentor and Suisan I thought it was very interesting I thought it really contributed to the operatic nature of the Eternals mythology Eros was really the missing piece and I get that it ended up being in part for a big reveal in Judgment Day but that reveal felt a little bit flat for me in and of itself because it's just not I mean it kind of feels like part of the idea was well now it's Harry Styles so big reveal Harry Styles is here I'm not there it does feel like good work is being done to rehab the character I think everybody is right to be skeptical about having not dealt with his sins of the past I think it's probably good that we haven't done it in the midst of all this because it's really something that needs its own time and space and this is a lot of character work to do just to establish that this dude is important period in a very like chaotic time frame like he's really only getting a couple issues of judgment day a couple side issues here and there he's not getting the background that any of the eternals from gillen's eternals run before this had so it's a lot all at once it does feel very much in service of harry styles star fox which whatever i'm ambivalent about you know make money how you're gonna make money but (laughs) if we go through all this make him a high profile character put him on the avengers in 2023 or something like that and we don't return to the complicated nature of his powers and the problematic way he's used them in the past it's going to be really unfortunate but for now i'm willing to sit on like i I probably would be complaining if they were trying to work that out in this while also dealing with extinction level events and like parental trauma and all this other stuff like it's a lot for for one issue this issue i think the review reveal during the axe issue of eros being the excluded one was sort of ruined by the marketing campaign obviously calling calling this and soliciting this star fox you know that somehow star fox is going to play a part in it so i think the marketing machine maybe took away some of the if there was going to be any shock value and it seems like that's something we're just going to be wrestling with for all of judgment day is like why are there three issues titled avengers x-men eternals and then there's a separate issue for the eternal star fox it seems like the eternals issue is going to be about ajak maybe we switch those so there was a surprise there's a lot of editorial and marketing plan that we are only on the receiving end of those decisions we don't really see what the intention of the big picture was and maybe they failed and maybe they succeeded i think that's a really good example of like it feels like a kind of a failure for me yeah like that moment is kind of killed but i am sort of lost in what the intention of any of this is 
is now, and I'm just kind of trying to get to the finish line. There's something here too about what pre-solicitation is doing to the kinds of surprises they try and set up with these events. Because we knew months in advance that Star Fox was coming back. It kind of feels like comics, or at least Marvel comics, hasn't really figured out how to do the surprise, or maybe did have it at one point, but then forgot. Like, there used to be a way of pulling off editorial surprises that actually There didn't used to be this internet fandom is the thing. Yeah, I guess so. Sometimes lately, they've even ruined issues like a few days before publication. X-Men Gold 30, you know, it was supposed to be the wedding between Kate and Piotr, and they revealed a few days before that Mr. and Mrs. X would be Rogue and Gambit, and like, ha ha ha, guess what? They get married in this issue, and they're like, why couldn't you have just let us read the issue, and then maybe have this book come out a month later than you than you want it to, just to not ruin the surprise of the issue. So, so X Star Fox by Kieran Gillen is our writer. Danielle de Nicolio is our artist. Frank William is our color artist. And BC Joe Sabino is our letterer. I do dig this art style overall all it doesn't hold up as if you try to compare it to the Eternals run itself but it's very stylized and it's very cute and I do enjoy Star Fox's look in it. I would definitely take this for a Marauders run. It's jarring out of Eternals as we read it, for sure. And then it's a little bit jarring out of Judgment Day as a whole because it is kind of, in a way that I really like, just not for this particular story, it's very Saturday morning cartoon. Like, this feels like a Star Fox adventure, and that's cool. I love that. I would actually read a ongoing Star Fox book with this art. This seems like a really heavy, kind of important, important one to go with Saturday morning cartoon adventure even if that's like part of the statement there's no point at which it gives you sort of a hard right turn just to show you that it's aware of its own cartoonishness in the face of the really serious story so it just it's a little bit it's really good I just don't know that the style matches the severity of the content for me yeah I completely agree I love this art style and I would love to read like the Saturday morning cartoon adventures of Star Fox and his quest to like bring love and hope and optimism to the universe to like counteract the balance of death but like it definitely in the face of everything that's going on it it does feel like kind of jarring aesthetically and yeah it doesn't really come across necessarily the gravitas of it even the like happy crying face of the dying man at the end when he's kind of smiling it's like should he be I mean, I guess that was to signify that Star Fox did some good at the end of his life. Is he emotionally manipulating him at the end? I'm not against the idea of like, calm, be calm and at peace as you go. Like, that's the power. But like... I think he was loving him. I think he was sending him love. I think he should be a lot like Breeze from Mistborn. Yeah. And that's what what they really have to reckon with. That was a really good example of like... Also, the other thing, just because I'm looking at the page right now, I really appreciate how gender non-conforming he is made to look throughout this yes in the best possible ways see i love that reconceptualization of eros but when they've shown the eternals i figure it's because of eros's death and rebirth that's why eros has this new more gender non-conforming form but then when they show flashbacks of years ago that's the one part i was kind of like wait wait hold on what's going on here because when they showed like cersei in the past like showed her in her old look her old outfit but like they're showing eros 
now in the past years ago in the party zone still in this new beautiful rad redesign which i'm like but i feel like sometimes marvel really likes to pave over mistakes and problem areas and paving over eros's previous design is probably a decision i'm okay with if it, if he remains consistently in this like semi-femme sometimes masculine depending on who is drawing him like always seems like he's wearing lipstick there's a lot of jewelry like i'm down if we do flashbacks that still depict him that way what we can't do is pave over the sexual coercion stuff like that's the thing that we keep returning to is like we need to revisit that and juggling all that is going to be tough but i'm definitely like i'll, I'll give you a pass on aesthetics if if this is the aesthetic that you are going to do consistently even in flashbacks and then you'll do the narrative work to really reckon with this dude there's some really great stuff about this aesthetic i really love some of the the like tiny detail like all the jewelry stuff really stands out to me all the jewelry that star fox is wearing there are a couple of background characters who have some like interesting necklaces star fox has a gauntlet sweet sun has like these uh like amethyst stones like there are a lot of really nice little details on these outfits i like the way the hydrogen molecules look or the hydrogen atoms look when they're bond no they're molecules bonding to each other like just there's a lot about this book that's really delightful and even though it doesn't necessarily for me convey the like horrific gravity of the world coming apart and people suffering what it does kind of do and maybe that's the point is is bring the joie de vivre in the art that Star Fox carries with them wherever he goes like Star Fox is a joy of living and and you see that on every page that Star Fox is there like there's just a an intense presence of the moment and I think the art does convey that how do we feel about the idea that Star Fox is being presented almost as a sort of like an inspirational messiah for the eternal figures um which is really kind of brought to front with his conversation with Xeroth he sees Zeros as the main prime eternal and he's like you can have the job back I just I need to inspire people right now like how is that reconceptualization of, of putting the love out there and, and as a character working I don't know that I think of it as necessarily messianic definitely like when we especially like in the in the Marvel universe when we think of like what are the traits of a strong leader is you know a strong leader is someone who or like a good leader is someone who steps aside when they know they need to step aside and let the right person take power I think I think it's like a like how do we know that eros is the right person for the job because eros knows when to step aside and let zeros step in mm, that's interesting you don't see it as a sort of a messianic parallel that he's the first ever new eternal the first created and created specifically as a counterbalance to the measure of death to bring like hope and love to the world i don't see star fox as like the chosen one i see him as the people the, the one who they agreed was the right person at the right time to take on the role because oh yeah i don't um, mean as prime eternal i just meant like his creation is not like in a christian sense but his creation is like a specifically like i was created to bring peace love and joy to this universe to counterbalance like this horrible evil you know it's a it's a creation myth of somebody who is not prophesied to be born he's not like prophesied to be a ruler or nothing like that i'm not trying to argue that i'm just saying like he has this like specific like cosmic savior archetype going on if only for like the what he was designed to be and who he was designed to conquer i think there's a degree to which it could be a writerly choice like there, the elements are there that if a writer wants to be like i'm gonna fuck around with some messiah stuff with star fox all the elements are there like and i think you know the idea that 
he's the first one that was created could be part of the machine. Like, I think if you just if you're if you're writing the Saturday morning cartoon adventures, you probably won't do that storyline. If you're a Kieran Gillen type, you probably (laughs) will. And like, it's there for either way. Like, it's plausible either way. It's because it's Kieran Gillen that I even like jump at this to begin with. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I guess what I like is the idea of um, that being a story that's contained to the Eternals mythos and the Eternals corner of the universe such that you know when like an x-man comes in and sees this happening they're like yeah he's your chosen one that's what's going on with you guys we've got a whole other thing going on over here I mean, I think his powers and what he's wrestling with, with how to use them would work really well in a storyline about somebody who is trying to inspire a group, whether that is the Eternals, whether that is the entire planet, whether he is using his powers or using the platform that his powers make him feel like he has. I think it's interesting that somebody who can manipulate emotions and has done so for terrible, selfish, improper reasons also is like, okay, I can do this for the greater good. And I can find a way to show people that this is my love language. I can stand up in front of a group and do something. I think that would be a very interesting journey for him to go on. I think at this point, it's kind of up to whoever has all the pieces and how they decide to put them together when I, you know, because we just have no idea where this dude's going next. Right. I'm actually excited. There's a branch of possibilities that could come out of Star Fox stories from this event and I'm excited to see what direction Kieran Gillen will take because he doesn't always take the option that we think a writer should and sometimes he just takes it to this point where you're like holy hell I love it so I, I'm excited for what this sets up for Eros as a character whether whether it be uh, on the side of light or the side of darkness or as a weird in between you know I'm literally checking Twitter while we talk because they're announcing stuff like um, currently and I'm just curious like if there if Star Fox was going to be on whatever the next incarnation of the Avengers is, if there was going to be another Eternals book, now would be a good time for them to let us know because once Judgment Day ends, he doesn't have anywhere to go, technically. Eternals 2, the movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can we just, like, get the movie Eternal Star Fox to look a little bit more like this? Then I will watch all of those movies. <laughs> but he looks like he looks like 90s Star Fox, like, in a bad way. <laughs> I'll be interested to see because it's Harry Styles and he does not shy away from doing some gender bending stuff. If they will do that because they have an actor who can who can live up to that or if they will, you know, try and be lowest common denominator about it and not rock the boat and just have him look like Star Fox as we've known him. Well, in the MCU, I do tend to think that they go with the lowest common denominator approach a lot of the time. I don't disagree with that, but the but the Eternals movie was not a lowest common denominator movie. That's true. I would, I mean, I would completely yeah. agree. Bringing up the MCU in this does make me wonder. This new look for Star Fox is definitely inspired by maybe ideas they want to do for the MCU, and maybe the casting of Harry Styles, who is is known for pushing the boundaries of gender, to making Star Fox doing the same. By my read, it one hundred percent is just given the proximity of. Karen Gillen's Eternal series to the release of the movie, the characters in the movie, the characters in the book, the end of that movie, the like where we are now with Star Fox in the series, who's playing. I mean, it's just it all it all feels very we thought this out, but we're trying to make it look like it all happened by chance. 
I mean, it's interesting because you you can understand why the actor being who he is, it would make sense for movie Star Fox to have some even like minor aesthetic gender play. I still don't think I mean, I love it in the comics, but I still haven't seen like a reason for it. You know what I mean? Like he still hasn't like said, like when I came out of the exclusion, I realized that like love is so much grander than I ever thought it was. Or I'm I'm not just one thing because I'm all things because they haven't said anything that would indicate why this look is now present for the comic book comic books character and there's not enough people who care about Star Fox to really do this like I'm, and none of this is me complaining I think it's very interesting but I would be curious to see if like other things that we've been talking about if somebody will pick up on this in the future and give it an explanation or if this is just like we just thought he'd look kind of cooler this way so this is how we're doing it now well right is it a retcon or is it is it a new thing going forward because it, from the flashbacks in this issue, it feels like it's supposed to be a retcon. You know, he's he's getting very chummy with a what presumably looks to be a dude alien. You know, are we supposed to take from this that Star Fox has always been gender nonconforming and pansexual? I would love to think that it's a retcon because it's fucking Star Fox. Like him being like a cis straight idea of what like a ladies man is, like a very Casanova Don Juan type. That's always been true in the past. But if we're creating a character whose name is love and was created to like body love and is like i don't know like he's he's literally a character who almost necessarily should be pansexual and who should be like non-binary or genderqueer or something like that it, it just makes sense for his character in the same way that like you know ancient depictions of love goddesses and love gods can often be androgynous or you know like for everybody it's it's love for love it's not it's not just like this predatory sexuality that he's always been wrapped up in so i would love to think that this is somebody who he's always been so i guess my one question there is would you would rather just like let's just start fresh and we'll retcon this and we'll go from here rather than like have some form of like let's reckon with what we did in the past and the fact no. that we did make him this kind of sh- like i think they should do that i think they should okay. do both i think okay. that i think it's okay to have a pansexual like envy or gender non-conforming person who has done serious sexual crimes or like oh yeah manipulation be held accountable for that in fact i think it's necessary oh yeah that's that's one of the best parts about desire in uh the sandman series yeah desire is is gender non-conforming and and also a total shithead so yes like like, marvel's desire i firmly think that like that's how it should work if they really want to make star fox like an antithesis to thanos then star fox should be like desire in the marvel universe would be nice to see it acknowledged and i'm sure maybe the event's not the the right time to do it i would i would love to see you know arrows have to like you know like tell some like explain to somebody like you know you don't always want to see it but or at least the acknowledgement or star fox to go by you know like they them like and we know that it's karen gillen's not afraid to make characters non-binary because jack hart is they them i feel like star fox would be in any pronoun <laughs> yeah, he's one of those like I don't care what you call me, just don't call me late to dinner types. Uh, <laughs> perfect, <laughs> exactly. Do we feel this issue was essential knowledge for us? Do we think that we've come away learning more about Eros as Karen Gillan wants to present Eros, or do we feel like you know this was kind of an issue we didn't? I think this was a, an important reintroduction to the character, a reframing of how they see themselves connected to their abilities, to their community, their responsibility to the world. It's a very different take from what 
I remember of the character when they were in Avengers being just completely creepy. Just to kind of go back to that scene that we've we've talked about a few times, the scene where he's he's with that man at the end. And I, I really like what you said, TK, about, you know, he was giving him love. That was the scene that really stood out for me because we don't really see a lot of those quiet moments where a superhero just does the like, just does the thing where they're with someone while they pass. He's an on the ground person. He wants to be with people through their through their moments. And to him, you know, empathy is being with people in those moments. It's not about it. You know, it's not it's no longer like the empathic manipulation of emotions. It's I understand what you're going through because I can feel what you're going through. So let's, you know, be together. And that to me is an important reframe of what the character could be going forward. And I think that that would be a remarkable story to tell because we don't have a lot of characters that do that. A lot of characters that whose whose power is I, I have empathy for you in a super duper way. For me, it's really going to depend on where we go from here. If Star Fox is getting a major appearance in on a team book, if he's getting a solo series, this will end up being very important. It ends up being really important for Judgment Day plot because now we know how a lot of humanity is going to be saved. And it is somewhat important to Eternals politics, although like Star Fox, I'm not really sure if we're going to be doing more Eternals when this is all over. I really hope we do. Gillen has really worked hard to make these characters worth fans investing their time in. There's great plot set up. I really like that the political intrigue has stayed all the way through from issue one of the Eternals run all the way to this, and this fight with Zerus means something if it changes Eternals politics and we continue to see stories that follow that. If this all finishes and we don't hear from Star Fox again and there's no pickup Eternals book really all this will have given us is kind of one more minor plot cog that explains why a bunch of humanity lived when judgment day is done so i'm i'm really rooting for this to matter but right now it's still in limbo for me now that you were saying uh that the, the art looks like a saturday morning cartoon i'm looking at this page again where the man is dying and i'm like all i can see is he looks like a character out of beauty and the beast <laughs> Looks like Bell's father. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's Maurice right there. I don't know how I feel about the solution to the generator trying to destroy humanity by taking them to the middle of the machine. It's something that we've seen Marvel do a lot in recent events where like, hey, let's take all of humanity and put them inside the dead celestial, the Avengers Tower. Let's, you know, like take humanity and, you know, put them inside this little enclave that uh, the X-Men have in Central Park. Whatever. It's like it just feels like Marvel has done that a lot lately, and I I would hate to be a citizen of the six one six Earth because it feels like every two months there's like an in game kind of thing that like just destroys everything. I think it's really interesting. It's a really good idea, and it leads me further towards thinking that maybe this event is not going to go away until far after the Sins of Sinister. I very much thought that like this was going to reset at the end with like the killing of a Myrtleclon, but everything that we're seeing it feels so real. Like they're just gonna keep this and like the I, I feel like i shouldn't be talking about this but by the time this episode comes out it will be all over and everybody will know about it but like the whole comparing sins of sinister to age of apocalypse to me like inherently
inherently implies that it is going to go away at the end, that it is an alternate reality and that we seem to be in it now. But it's putting all the humans in the machine and what we saw in X-Men Red this week, just all of this is leading me to believe that maybe this isn't, maybe this is actually going to stick around as status quo for a little bit. They're breaking so many norms and they're doing so many things outside of the box and outside of the prescribed rules. And Kieran Gillen's been doing that all along in Judgment Day and in Immortal X-Men and in Eternals. And it just feels like, where does this ball stop rolling? I agree that I can see this going real deep and real off the rails. You know, especially Krakoa really changed the game for me for thinking about like what Marvel would be willing to do, because I feel like there's often a sense of like, they're not going to get so far from like relatable reality. And Krakoa really both did in terms of like, in terms of the fact that like, it's not relatable that we're all moving to a sentient island. At the same time, there's a relatability to the idea that minorities really want to create community with like-minded people and help and support and save each other. And I feel like the idea that the status quo here would continue is not relatable, but at the same time, like we are living in constant disaster and yes, it completely is relatable. So I can really, I could see this going on really, you know, for two or three years before we get people living in an earth that is recognizable to us. And I honestly would be okay with it. My mind is very open to the possibilities right now. I don't want a deus ex machina fix to this. I want there to be like a real moral question that lives at the center of this. Like I I like the question of, are we all responsible for each other? And like, should that be the criteria by which we are all ultimately judged? Because I think that's a really compelling question. And I'm really frustrated at times in this story, (laughs) like watching the heroes scramble around trying to, trying to like, trying to stop the judgment, which they think that they can do, which they, they clearly cannot do rather than like address the question at hand which is like do, do we deserve it but we never really think about the consequences and maybe we don't deserve it and having to rest in that place and think about the ramifications of that answer that we don't deserve it is really to me compelling philosophy and makes for compelling comics as well if if they're brave enough to go there with it um so that's so i i guess i hate the comic booky nature of like everybody into the machine you'll all be safe here because it really gets it really runs away from an important question that I think lives at the center of this event and I want more from it. Yeah, sometimes it does feel like this book is, this event especially, is, is trying to, you know, be Chidi Adagonye and teaching me as Eleanor Shellstrup, like, what do we owe each other? It's a little heavy-handed and I also think for this event, if you did have Kieran Gillen use one of the Moira clones to reset reality, it would really underscore some of the stories that we've been telling, especially with Magneto um, and the impact with this event on Arako and the changes that are going on over in X-Men Red. So I, I don't want to do Submachina. I don't want that. But I also don't really want Star Fox to come in as a Mary Sue. So I, I don't know how this event can end satisfactorily to me, but I'm, I'm down to see how it's going to go. I'm kind of at a point right now where I don't know how it can end, period. <laughs> so <True>. like <laughs> in the best possible way, I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck ever you guys want to do. I'll, I'll, I'm picking it up either way. So just like, let's let's go. I would love to put Star Fox back on trial. I'd love to see somebody else writing She-Hulk, and even if it was a mini-series that was specifically The Trial of Star Fox, I think it'd be particularly cool if it was a non-binary person. I think it would be particularly interesting if it was somebody who had some worthwhile experience that they wanted to share about issues of sexual trauma, essentially, and I would like to just hash this out. Coercion is a very real thing that is a lot more present and problematic for a lot of people in day-to-day life than, you know, immediate violence 
against physical violence. And I think we it's easy for us to talk about physical violence in comic books, but sometimes more subtle forms of co- coercion are not. And it's an important part of who Star Fox is. And I thought that trial format was a really good way to do it. So, you know. I completely agree. And it sucks that that was never satisfyingly concluded. Like, he yeah. always just gets away at the end after a fight breaks out. Like, come yeah, on. Exactly. So you never told us what you what the verdict is. <laughs> yeah, we got to get that verdict. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. I, I think if, if Marvel wants to try to push it all aside and pretend it never happened, I think you're going to have a, a very vocal contingent of fans, especially online, who are going to want some sort of accountability. It depends on how this event ends. Like, I'm past guessing anymore how this event's going to end because the axe has had almost as many twists and turns as uh, Ten of Swords to me. And I was like, at, at the end of it, I was like, let me just see how this ends before I kind of judge anything because it is like an event that has just challenged what I expect out of events. So I, I'm here. I'm down for it. Um, if Star Fox's position as, you know, a grand hero, I, I really think Star Fox is going to need to have those issues addressed. You know, if he plays, if Star Fox plays a prominent role in the books going forward, there's something is going to have to be addressed with that. You know, there are a couple of things that really get me very excited about this event. The modern Celestial story, which we haven't had like a Celestial story in quite a while. And it's really pulling interesting story threads, some really great character reflection. And honestly, I'm really excited that we've got like a grand sweeping Marvel arc being ne- like like piloted by a queer person. I think some of that comes across in the writing. I don't know. It's a story that's that's connected to feeling in a way that I don't think I've seen in a lot of these other Marvel event stories. Like I feel like this has more heart than I've seen in any Marvel of Marvel crossover event without like also like vilifying perfectly good heroes like the Scarlet Witch. Hey everybody, it's Nico again, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xNateXGrayX. So TK and I have been looking at Punisher and Ghost Rider, and we kind of had to like toss Daredevil into the mix, because the thing that has become abundantly clear is that Marvel has made a clear decision to reposition the Punisher as something other than he was, and I think for the first time in a very long long time we're seeing heroes share a moniker at marvel like marvel is convinced that like if two people are both named john and they both know the same person that person will just die they'll die from knowing two people named the same thing and they'll never be able to keep it clear so much like the theory of zero it's just gonna drive them all insane and it's really with daredevil being daredevil and electra two heroes and one like i feel like we're gonna and somewhere new and that Ghost Rider is just a whole new bag of marbles and they are weird shapes and we're here for them. Weird shapes that are on fire. So we're going to talk about our continuing coverage of Daredevil taking a look at Daredevil Legacy number 653 because if it's on the fucking cover it matters which is Daredevil number 4 written by Chip Zdarsky with art by Rafael De La Torre Matthew Wilson on colors and Clayton Cowles over on letters. From there we're going to find ourselves in the pages of Punisher War Journal which 
I cannot say enough positive things about Marvel having a female writer on this book. Really astronomical work. Punisher War Journal, this issue was called Brother, written by Torin Grunbeck, with art by Raphael Pimentel, color artist Matt Mila, and VCs by... And VCs. Sure, guys. Sure. It's just like, I can't say letters anymore without saying VCs. Oh my gosh, man. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, incredible letters in, in the industry. I love all of you, right? So it, whether you work at VCs or not, though clearly we do talk about VCs over here, virtual calligraphy a bit more. Letters by VCs, Corey Pettit. We're going to follow the burning trail all the way down to Ghost Rider for Shadow Hunters in Ghost Rider number seven, Legacy number 250. Wow, that feels like it should have been more important somehow. <laughs> How did I not know that? Oh my God. I have like five notes on this issue uh, it, because it was very well plotted. It's a slow book. We'll get to it. But Ghost Rider is by Benjamin Percy, Corey Smith, Oren Jr., Brian Valenza, and VCs Travis Lanham. I love that we have three different letterers in one book. That actually is a really cool moment for it because I feel like we have three different letterers in one segment because I feel like, you know, there's only so many VC letterers and it's really cool to get such a blending of styles. And I think we get a chance to see each person shine in a context that is, I don't want to say like specific for each letterer, but I think you see the best of them highlighted in these three books. So the thread that sort of brought us together initially on these titles was kind of like, you know, Punisher is reformatting into a book about a demon, whereas Ghost Rider is sort of reformatting to be a book about a guy. And Daredevil is sort of, you know, stuck on Punisher in like a kind of like Stacey Rico way, but kind of like a gay stalker swim fan kind of way. So, you know, there's some doxing involved. And it's amazing how much I feel like you really could be reading Daredevil and not reading Punisher and kind of be fine. And I feel like you can definitely be reading Punisher and not be reading Daredevil and be totally fine, which is... I think the hallmark of Matt and Electra and Frank's relationships. Although uh, I do think Electra falls a little bit more into the Matthew. Why do you care about what Frank is doing? Like, kind of camp. You know what I mean? At the same time, though, they're coming to a head, and I don't think this will be the last time that they do. I feel like dedicated readers who give both of these books a real solid chance and are reading them in parallel. It's gonna be satisfying each time the conflict happens. And we're building to that conflict and there's a promise at the end of Punisher War Journal Brother that says, you know, issue seven, it's got Daredevil, it's got Punisher, definitely a good thread there. And while this examination began connecting the threads of Punisher to Ghost Rider in kind of, we're all the spirits of vengeance and the midnight sons of fathers who never, I don't know, whatever. But we originally had that like, ah, the man pain, the gravitas of the man pain kind of thread and I don't think it's there anymore. I think these two books, Ghost Rider and Punisher, were born of the same moment. Were born of that same, no, fuck it, change everything. But I think maybe through organic development, maybe through a sense of these writers were given the room to shine. Both of these titles have had one shots. I don't know, but I think Punisher has firmly aligned itself with more of the Daredevil side of Marvel horror and Ghost Rider 
is literally doing its own weird thing. But we have moments like the thing we discussed a few weeks back where the beast of the hand shows up in Wolverine. And I feel like at any moment, things could converge in ways that we haven't thought of yet. And, you know, Johnny could be getting into some hell business and some demon business. And suddenly there's the beast of the hand, like cracking wise and being like, you guys don't even know what I've got going on over with my people. It's really an engaging moment for Marvel having this opportunity to consider how the hand can be used. I want to say that it's really of note that Ben Percy wrote the hand appearing in Wolverine stuff, but Ben Percy writes Ghost Rider, which also had Wolverine appearing in it, but has not written the hand in Ghost Rider. You know, Ghost Rider has its own demonic kind. And so, all right, one of the things about the hand that I think is really kind of gone a little askew is up through the end of Electra Assassin number eight, the hand had less than 15 appearances. So we weren't really looking at a phenomenal number of appearances for the hand. And now we find ourselves all these years later at about 380 appearances of the hand. And something that we put forth in our initial treatise on Electra overutilized or under celebrated was sort of like the original magic of Electra was a proprietary self-contained she should be used sporadically it makes her more powerful kind of thing right and ultimately they said nah fuck it she's female Wolverine and I think that's just an apt comparison I'm not trying to be reductive in the least because she's not really Wolverine's love interest but I believe there were two roads and they said Electra could sustain more infused and I believe the hand has faltered in the same lane. Electra is versatile enough of a character in the same way that Wolverine is and cool enough and iconic enough that we forgive seeing her in situations where you go, well, she can't have been, you know, doing this thing with Savage Avengers and doing this thing with Matt. That timing doesn't work. No, there's no way. You just kind of go with it and it's a great character. It's always fun. It completely breaks any sense of continuity, but in a way that like at a certain point with comics we really have to just be okay with the breaking and certain characters get bigger passes with those things. The big thing is we don't get enough women who have that moment. Uh, I think there are characters besides Wolverine who we see that way. You know, Deadpool is another great example. There are popular characters that everybody wants to use and at a certain point you just go, okay, go for it. But I think that the common wisdom is it's never going to be a female character and I think that is a common wisdom that's 40 years old and really has been changing pretty rapidly, but I don't think the industry has changed with our desire to see things shift. We're getting there now. I'm happy it's there with Electra. I don't think anybody feels that way about the hand. I think that the hand being a mysterious, I, I've referenced this before, but uh, it, I always go back to Ron D. Moore saying that he was never sure if they ever should have showed as much as they did with the Cylons because he really felt like the Cylons were much scarier if you had to imagine what what their culture and their world was like. And we never really got those glimpses inside the base star or the planets they were occupying or anything like that. The hand, we've gone even so much further than that. And I think it is a little bit to their detriment when it comes to the effect that a shadowy ninja organization can have. But we haven't really figured out a way to use them that can shift our expectations for the group. And I think part of that has to do with sort of the murky relationship between the hand and the beast of the hand 
Now, while the Hand themselves initially are introduced in the pages of Daredevil 174 in May 1981, they actually didn't get The Beast until Electra Assassin Number 1 in July of 1986. So the introduction of the Hand and the introduction of the Beast are two very different things. And I would note that if there's about 400 appearances of The Hand, there's only about 60 appearances of The Beast, and eight of them belong to Electra Electra Assassin, something like six of them belong directly in a row to Daredevil Fall from Grace. The final appearance of the Beast in the 90s is February of 1994. Then the Beast appears in a 2002-2003 miniseries with Electra called Electra Glimpse and Echo before returning in the pages of Shadowland way later in summer of 2010. So from there, from Daredevil Shadowland, the Beast has actually been used, I would say, if we're doing the math on it, at maybe a slightly higher rate. Now, we actually recently had a conversation about this. I don't think the Beast should be a fucking trash-talking Muppet. I don't think the Beast needs to be like, girl, I'm the Beast. I think the Beast works a little bit better when he's like, look at me. I'm a gargoyle-like statue. Aren't you, like, super threatened? The cool thing about the Beast and the Punisher and it being the statue is if you didn't know any better, you might think that maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe these people are just fucking insane and have access to magic that they just are kind of doing whatever they want and blaming it on the beast or that it's so unknowable that whatever its motivations are are bigger than anything the hand is doing and the hand is just kind of blindly following orders both things are a lot scarier than I'm gonna shit talk my daughter in Wolverine (laughs) even though that character is really cool and that was a funny moment the fact that it is the the head of the hand is weird. In part because the hand, by having the beast, right, the hand is like a death cult and, you know, they worship the beast, but the beast doesn't really take an active role in the hand. The beast just sort of inspires antagonism and nihilism and hate and kill em ups. Like, he's not, this is my big plan, kill people this way. He's a little bit more like, it's a lot of good bodies, all right, keep killing, all right. And that's really the thing that the Beast is meant to offer. He's not an antagonist, so he needs uh, the Punisher, but with the Beast being used well, it gives us the sort of story that we get in Daredevil number four, where it's really about Stick, Daredevil, and Elektra talking about these antagonistic players in the hand, like Akka and the Punisher. We also get some interesting new characters. We get some really great reimaginings of characters that have been running around this book. But one of the great things is the antagonist, the beast. He doesn't show up and is like, you know, maniacal, maniacal. Look at me. I'm monologuing, played by Nathan Lane. Like he is a force, not a direct antagonist. And I think that's such a great use of the beast. I agree. I just remain in a state of suspended judgment because I don't know how this dude that I've now seen on page before is going to factor into all this stuff. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the nature of mainstream comics where you've got so many years of iterations and people can pull from this and that. And like, perhaps Ben Percy really liked some iteration where the Beast talked more that's just not coming to mind for me. Perhaps it's a little bit more on the Charles Sewell run, you know, and that's totally fine. There's a wealth to be drawn from. And that's one of the things that I think the Zdarsky run does better than most. We see 
a real sense of love for the grandness of the history of Daredevil. Daredevil itself, as a concept, is so much more than any single parts of the run. First of all, there's two men. There's Matt Murdock and there's Daredevil, right? And when you talk about, like, Captain America, there's really just one man. It's Captain America is Steve Rogers. When you talk about Iron Man, there's really just Tony Stark is Iron Man. The duality of character in someone like Superman and Clark Kent, I think, perhaps represents a slightly more well-balanced human. Funny enough. You know, Spider-Man as well. There's a lot of Peter and there's a lot of Spider-Man. And I'm certainly not saying that those characters have never had runs that dealt with their inability to separate their division of iteration. But Matt Murdock is an illusion that Daredevil puts on so he can continue to protect the collateral damage he's accumulated along the way. Matt Murdock isn't a person. Matt Murdock is the threads of the the tattered boxer's robe that he clings to from his father. The true thing that Matt inherited from his dad are the red bloody gloves from the ring. And that's what he chooses to wear on his hands, these red gloves. And it's an embodiment of the legacy of violence that he accepted from his father into himself. But it's the sense of a desire for better, a, a wonder for the world and what the world could be that he got from his mother, her open-minded desire to be part of a Peace Corps and a, a world-changing organization and then finding ways to continue those paths through religion. And that's even something we see Mac grappling with here. There's a true sense of dealing with the grandness of religion in that Matt has become a Massionic figure in and of himself. Massionic to what extent, I can tell you, but I would say that to talk about Daredevil is to talk about years of collateral damage that Daredevil has allowed the fictitious alias of Matt Murdock to accrue by virtue of keeping him in society. And this run seeks to dissolve that bond. There is no longer a relationship with society. And I think in that, now that he is a being of pure punching and pure faith, now he actually is, as Daredevil, both of his parents' children. I love that perspective because I really have been harping on this everybody is playing a role in kind of a grand theater that's happening. And I will say I, I'm i uncertain about the Beast as a talking, you know, present on panel very often character. But the idea that this plan where Akka is playing a role and has to show up in this particular moment to speak to Matt and Matt needs to be here and Goldie being a part of that from the side of a possible uh, godlike counterpart to the Beast, that there are these forces that are part of a plan that all of the characters that we are seeing are playing a role in and we start to get questions of free will are they acting according to a part are they doing what they want and by doing so fulfilling the goals of these creatures there's a lot of questions to ask and it does become a quasi religious experience to delve into that but that's a big leap from I'm protecting Hell's Kitchen and I don't think it's bad to go there with this character we know eventually we will get back to Hell's Kitchen in the next 10 years I don't think we're going to have Matt ascend to heaven and stay there permanently there's going to be a return to roots at some point and that's the nature of comics so in the meantime go deep and go long and let's explore this part of Matt's identity that is really important and can go weird places because it's comics and I would love a world 
world where Matt and Daredevil really can become such different people that if people really want fucking Daredevil, like classic Daredevil, make it Mike Murdoch. Make it Mike Murdoch, put him in the yellow suit, leave him in Hell's Kitchen. I'm good. Let Matt go out and do magical Daredevil things. Because the ability to reconcile the two parts of Daredevil's mythos, hard-boiled crime and super Eastern-influenced high-form mysticism about the personification of evil among us hiding in all of our souls like it's just not the same genres and there's nothing wrong with blending those two genres but frequently they get blended wrong i'm fine with it if there's two books daredevil and daredevils and there's three total daredevils that really wouldn't bother i think fuck marvel be brave give me mike murdoch yellow daredevil (laughs) but you know at the end of the day the big question is does this carry on the legacy of what daredevil means to people and i think nothing better represents that this does exactly that than the portrayal of Cole North, who is so hot, it's just not there <laughs> to other things. Like, other things aren't that beautiful. It's just like, uh. and, you know, getting to see him understand that he is so much more than the pawn in someone else's game that he has been reduced to by ability to manipulate the outcome it doesn't change who he is as a dynamic thunderer of a man. And I just really think that, you know, Chip Zdarsky is embodying all of the best things about this universe. And the fact that Elektra kind of had to take some licks from Matt, she misled him, she knew she'd get in trouble for it, but she did it with honor. Like she took the difficulty. I don't know. He has an unbelievable grasp of a character that our whole thing was the best grasp is no grasp. So it's like really fascinating to see how clearly defined his Electra is when she represents the two Electras the way Daredevil allows Matt to be like a suit he wears Electra you know Matthew Electra kind of wears hey I'm Electra socialite to interact with society but by the time Daredevil comes into contact with like Electra she's given up on those illusions that she maintained in college so Electra is Matt 15 years further in the dissolution of two parallel selves timeline and I think the reverberations on that play out in a maturity that comes off with reservation and it's a really beautiful portrayal that we so infrequently get for a woman. I think another component that is playing a big role for me in this maturing of both these characters and their relationship is that moment, the sincerity of that moment where Matt says, I love Kirsten, I love Electra." That is a very real adults mature thing that is kind of advanced romance in comics and we've been seeing it happen over in the pages of X-Men with Scott and Jean and Emma and Logan and they're having a little bit of cheeky fun over there on top of getting into the romantic complexity which I love I'm having a ton of fun with it I would love to see more all the time but seeing it laid out so plainly by Chip Zdarsky and Daredevil and knowing who Elektra is and that even if we haven't gotten to a point now where we're talking about it you know that she is probably aware that Matt feels this way and is probably okay with it in a lot of ways has her own life has her own loves they also are doing big shit so at a certain point they kind of can't this isn't like relationship drama this is two people who have enormous goals and bear enormous responsibility also being human beings and that's just really really cool to see also on some you know 
show. Not real level. I would like to think that the MC3 timeline involves the child of Elektra and Daredevil who manifests psychic billy clubs, right? Oh, wild I devil. kill for something like that. You know, a little bit wild thing, a little bit Daredevil, yes. a little bit Elektra, yes. all fun, right? Yes. And uh, uh, so getting this moment, I kind of felt a little bit like when Rachel Gray got to see her parents get married, which sort of makes me sound crazy, but, you know, we all pick our fiction suits, right? We all pick the things that get us through the day and, you know, whether it's you super attached to a character in music or you super attached to a fictional character, someone from TV, from movies, doesn't really matter. But, like, there is something to the idea that I really connect with both Daredevil and Elektra uniquely and together and sort of despite each other and sort of because of each other. And this was a fulfilling last page. The idea that they are unioned, that they are one team now in a way that is culturally interpreted to mean eternal, right? I just felt really fulfilled and grateful that it was done in a way that felt so true to the characters and there wasn't some sort of check out Electra's wedding dress special, though I would have loved the Christian Siriano <laughs> super badass warrior kimono dress they put her in. Uh, a, if we all survive this, I'd really love to go back. They, they strike me as the type who are like, you know, we did the, the civil ceremony just so we could be married, but we're going to do a party next year. Don't worry, you're all invited. So I would love to go back and do that. Um, I name myself Nate Gray and um, often will put in my like Twitter bio or whatever bio that I'm the Nate Gray of Earth 1812, which is this one. So yeah, I fucking get it. I was obsessed with the Scott and Jean wedding issue and I still think about it all the time. So I really do get it. This one isn't quite mine yet because I'm so new to the fandom, but man, what a special moment to be a part of as somebody who really like made a conscious choice to become part of this fandom and to read a lot of Daredevil and to like read a lot about Elektra and to get really into these characters to see this moment that is an iconic wedding between two characters but is also such a big shift in how they present themselves and what they do and where they are that it is a wedding of sort of like biblical cosmic proportions in terms of what it might mean for these two like street level ninja characters it's just really cool and such a fun way to fuck around with continuity it's definitely one of the things that makes me say that marvel is attempting really bold movement here sure you know there is definitely a sense of unavoidable perhaps cynicism where well what is this all going to matter they're just going to take it all back anyway but it kind of feels like they haven't yet it feels like we're continuing to celebrate and thrive on the world of change, the exploration of what's different, of what's new, of what's redefining these titles. And for that reason, I really believe that Marvel may stick to their guns on the redefinition of Daredevil as Daredevil and Elektra sharing the moniker and not back down anytime soon. And in the same regard, I believe that Punisher War Journal Brother really was, in many ways, for the first time, unavoidable additional reading for this Punisher run. Not that the first one wasn't great, but goddamn if this one doesn't literally rip a lot of the ideas of Punisher apart in a way that you have to interact with on paper. I think the Punisher run has just been setting up some really cool stuff about this weird situation that Frank Castle has found himself in. And this particular issue of Punisher War Journal was a really nice return to a situation we might find Frank in in any other Punisher book, but now things are totally 
completely different. And yet again, with a much less mystical air about things, we are told this guy is not a good guy. He is a villain. And even when you put him in the context of another villain, he's still a bad guy. Two villains can fight. And that doesn't make one of them a hero. And Frank is still not one of those. It's like you read my notes because my whole thing about this issue is now we're contrasting the concept of people killing the Punisher. In previous runs, there have always been bad guys looking to off the Punisher to change the game. But now, uh, all right, here's the problem. If you're telling that Jigsaw is trying to kill someone, I'm like, that's bad. Stop him. If you're like, Jigsaw is trying to kill someone equally as bad as Jigsaw, I'm like, oh, uh, stop him but if you're like jigsaw is trying to kill someone who is literally the embodiment of the thing that will eat satan i find myself a little hard pressed to be like stop him and it's so difficult because i really think the punisher has been wrong for so long and it feels like the books are only now catching up to it and i love that transformation of idea i think when people express frustration about the fact that Punisher is seen as aspirational to certain people in the real world and that the Punisher logo is appropriated by certain people in the real world. One of the things we have to contend with is those people often fight people that we say are the bad guys. And we have to confront the idea that that doesn't necessarily make anybody in that situation a hero. And in fact, it can just lead to a violent, disturbing situation with collateral damage. And we don't need to fall back and sort of reify one group or another. We really can just have bad on both sides. And, and we have to be able to work with that kind of nuance. I think this Punisher story, like not just War Journal, but the, the Punisher main series, it all is really taking us to new ways of exploring what we think of as good and evil, who are the heroes and who are the villains, and updating our ability to to work with nuance. Like, I really do think we need to have Frank still around. I hope he never is treated like a hero again, but he does kind of work as something that lets us work through our concept of who a bad guy is. Because the problem is, the bad guy really is the person seeking to do, like, bad for bad. I don't think anything Jigsaw has ever done is justified. But say you're giving me an iteration of a character who believes this is his only way out of a bad situation who believes he is, you know, putting food on his family's table, is protecting something, protecting someone, and becomes part of this ugly engine. Okay, I don't like it. And it often feels like it uses cultural barriers to create a an excuse for tropism, right? But fine, if you can give me a compelling reason a bad guy bads, sure. Punisher literally is like the alarm, is like the long arm of Satan's law. And like, he's not just killing killers now, he's killing everything. He's going to have to kill Daredevil. He tried to kill Ares, and you know, Ares is the god of war, but like, Ares is the god of war in the same way that I'm sure there are cultures that are not so thrilled with Thor and all that fucking thunder. They're made of sensitive ear stuff, and every time he comes around, they die. I don't know. But like, there is definitely a weird way that we have to ask ourselves. Now we have this setup of people working to kill Punisher, and in the days of Garth Ennis, this would have played out over six issues and it would have been multiple issues with each character's point of view where they went up against the Punisher and then secretly he was one of them and you know you would you would kind of understand the perspective on one of them but like there really is something that 
it perverts earlier issues of Punisher by forcing us to confront that this has always been the case. It's just they're literally dressing it up as a devil now. I I also really want to always be keeping in mind this idea of the hand resurrecting his wife and children because yet again I think it's one of those things that you you can understand why somebody would fall prey to that type of reward and it's not a moment that makes you humanize or sympathize it just reminds you that like your next door neighbor could turn villain if the right stuff was given to them. And it's humanizing in a way that I don't think is meant to be like, yeah, you know, we all make mistakes, but more like, be careful, we all make mistakes. And the nature of Brother is sort of by way of an effort to create an atmosphere. I often feel these one shots aren't given the same weight for the creator's sake. I definitely don't know anything about how Torin Grunbeck put this story together and I don't personally know how things work at Marvel in that regard. But I have to assume that Jason Aaron isn't sitting out there somewhere saying, yeah, give away a big story moment for me. I have to assume that Jason Aaron, even though he has worked with Torin Grunbeck several times in the pages of Jane Foster, he probably says, you know, I have my story beats in mind. I'm really excited that another creator is getting to work with me and work on this amazing project with me. It's very exciting. But I do wonder if this was in many ways by sort of extending the narrative by giving us another moment that really comes down to the Punisher is further distending from what we've known, right? Like, I don't think Punisher and Ares actually do go hand in hand together, but Punisher and War go hand in hand together. Ares is the god of war. By trying to kill the god of war, Punisher very clearly turned his back on war and embraced death. And that's a transition because soldiers are meant to do the honorable thing. There's actually like a lot of code of, you know, rules and whether or not that is always enforced, whether or not we are saying that the military is always doing the things it should. I'm giving a really deadpan look at my microphone. I think we can say that there is meant to be a system of honor. And by following that logic, Punisher should have followed that system of honor. And now he's just murdering people. And with that transition, seeing him come up against Jigsaw is actually no big deal. Jigsaw is nothing to Frank the way war is to Frank. And Torin Grunbeck did in one issue what Jason Aaron worked to do over an arc. Now, of course, she couldn't have done it with this single issue had it not been for the arc. But there's also a lot of threads of the best of Steve Dillon on Welcome Back, Frank. You can like hear how happy I get talking about Steve Dillon's art. (laughs) You can really fucking hear how happy talking about Steve Dillon's art makes. Man, uh... And like, I understand that not everybody was a Steve Dillon person. And I don't know that I always felt Steve Dillon's work at Marvel always matched the fever pitch of the hateful complexity that came out in the pages of Hellblazer. I certainly don't think Preacher ever quite hit the depth of Hellblazer for me. But some of that Wolverine work, while evocative of Dillon's earlier material, had a lot of personality and added a lot of visual character to the Marvel Universe. And I'm just going to always take a minute to say Steve. 
Steve Dillon, great artist. So yeah, this was just such a treat because it said, hey, this is going to reinforce that previous arc. Now, instead of that arc being all there is because Marvel is trying to be a lot more controlled about appearances of characters, we have another one shot that just, it ends even with him being like injured, having to be healed, chilling with Maria. It's the best notes of Aaron's previous arc distilled in a way that can be easily re-ingested to improve the character's new status quo. It also gives us a more familiar Punisher context with this unfamiliar Frank. The Aaron book is taking place primarily at this hand facility that is weird and mystical and demonic and then sometimes we go fight a god but it does nothing in it feels particularly uh, Punisher adjacent. This is all new territory. That's very fun. That is how it should be not a mistake to do otherwise but what is brilliant about war journal is then we get to see frank in a context where we would expect to see him but now he is this new even more horrifying terrible person and how does that interact with a context where he would normally be well it's a lot more death and collateral damage and it seems to make less and less sense and it continues to tell us that frank is a bad dude one of the most important things to remind us in trying to create this complex narrative, Matt and Elektra are the good guys. Even if Matt and Elektra are going to openly have to do ugly things, it's ugly things to be good guys. And we can see that they're going to stay on a side that is clear of where the Punisher used to be, because the Punisher was kind of murky. They're going to be clear in their definition and recognize when they transgress. There will be a clear recognition of immorality, as opposed to a juxtaposed amorality that the Punisher usually carries. The Punisher is now, of course, definitively immoral and no longer recognizes a system of morals, right? Whereas we might have made the argument that the Punisher was amoral and could not see the difference between killing a monster and killing a would-be bad guy who was currently involved in a gang because he saw no other way out for himself, right? So I think that's going to be one of the defining lines coming forward, much in the way that I think Johnny Blaze has no interest in your conversations of good guys and bad guys. Leave him the fuck alone. Let him live his life because his brain tried to eat him recently. Johnny Blaze's hell is not a good and evil hell, and Johnny Blaze's demons are not good versus evil demons. And it's not even a gray area. It's an entirely other dimension. It's an entirely different wavelength. It's not wrestling with the same things that Punisher and Daredevil are wrestling with, but it's kind of like the third leg that this whole thing is standing on when we talk about hell and demons and war and Marvel horror. Because the outcome of most Marvel horror stories is, ah, the darkness is out there, but don't worry, we're in here. You know, there's a, ah, but the spooky, whereas one of the defining things of this Ghost Rider seems to be a, to harken back to a moment ago's discussion of Steve Dillon, a sort of excited vertigo-ness to the book, a sort of mayhem that says literally anything could happen in ways that completely redefine the story. I'm always interested in what kind of mystery someone likes, right? Because as far as I'm concerned, there's two kinds of mysteries and, you know, maybe, oh, actually, no, there's three, right? There's mysteries where you have enough clues to solve it yourself, mysteries where 
where you never had enough clues to solve it yourself. And of course, the mysteries of Laura. And I think with books like that, where you have to compare the two different kinds of mysteries, you might say, you know, you like the surprise, the shock of one that you can't solve on your own. Ghost Rider is much more one of those books. I don't think I have anywhere near the clues that I need to figure out what's coming next. And I think that's even kind of part of the point of the book. And this definitely feels like we have now left behind like bumpkin horror, right? I'm using like bumpkin horror. And like, I want to call this like side of the road horror. Like now, this could be suburbs even. It could be. I don't know where this is going to go. I love Johnny Blaze taking on a new role that he, as the host of the Spirit of Vengeance, can still use his abilities, whatever you want to call them, his superpowers. But he's no longer a dude just riding around doing vengeance stuff. He's like essentially kind of an FBI agent, I guess. You know, that's what the cover is telling us. But He's he too, like like Daredevil, Electra, and Frank is now on a new path. Like this is just a very different place for him. And in the place that he's in, we're not talking about like a war between good and evil. We're talking about the culture of hell and who that touches and how people suffer and how there's an entire dimension of the Marvel world that engages with that suffering, that feeds on it, and that, you know, people try and escape it or build something from it. That's what he's a part of and I think it's really cool, especially in light of what we know we get from the other Ghost Riders in this universe and how this all might come to interact in the future. Now I know I initially didn't realize this, but now I can't unrealize this. So, alright, I'm kind of curious how Marvel can handle some of their legacy numbering. So Ghost Rider, this being issued to 250 really got me thinking for a moment while we were talking because Daredevil is like 653 and so that got me thinking about Punisher and I wasn't sure if the most recent issue of Punisher had a legacy number on it and sure enough it doesn't so I went back to the most recent point of legacy numbering and that was the 2018 12th volume which ended with number 228 which was followed by a 16 issue volume. That's going to bring us up to 244, followed by seven issues that we've had so far. That brings us up to like 252. I don't accept that we should just accept that Punisher and Ghost Rider are at roughly the same number of issues. That is one third the number of issues of Daredevil. That feels misleading because Punisher War Journal, you know, there have been so many volumes that go by other things and the Punisher legacy numbering actually only includes books called Punisher with the exception of the five issues of Frankencastle are included as 160 to 164. So I kind of feel that when you take a look at everything that's happened to the Punisher and, you know, he was like Cap-ish for a minute. He was Frankencastle for a hot minute. He's been War Machine vaguely. You know, the Punisher's kind of played every role and by not putting legacy numbers 
numbers on this Punisher, they're saying, you could forget that stuff. But by putting the legacy numbers on Ghost Rider, I feel like they're saying you should care about that stuff. And a quick bit of research for Ghost Rider legacy numbering actually reveals that Marvel actually, you know, they uh, didn't do quite the same work uh, presentation-wise for the legacy numbering on Ghost Rider at the time and just ultimately renumbered for this series. And it's interesting that this is meant to also draw so much on classic Ghost Rider mythology when I feel like other than all the Blackheart stuff, which I'm sure must have made you thrilled, I feel like what the fuck does this have to do with previous Ghost Rider stuff? I've been kind of wondering about that myself and I'm wondering if the signaling is, okay, we get it. Old Ghost Rider stuff can't really carry on into the future. It just isn't anything. So he's he's going to start doing new stuff. He's going to start taking on new roles and he's going to start playing a more active, functional part of the horror and hell corner of the Marvel Universe. That is what I'm wondering. There could be another plan in play. My mind is very open with this particular character right now, but the idea of him working with Talia Warroad really feels like, okay, that's a very different thing, and even if we're going to keep kind of doing this Americana tour of the country style horror, if he is not just this dude who is wandering but he is more functional, with the exception of being a king of hell, I don't know that he's had the chance to do that, and that might really be the only thing that can keep me interested in a character like Johnny Blaze over the other Ghost Rives. I was also really happy to see them mention the King of Hell stuff. I feel that perhaps a lot of canon gets overlooked when it quickly falls out, and the fact that the crossover machine works at such a fever pitch makes it difficult to feel any other way. But it's of note that a lot of Ghost Rider canon sort of boils down to fans know it, no one else does. It's not hard to say to a person, hey, did you ever hear about that time that a bunch of mutants died? And they'd say, oh, in the sewers? And you say, not that one. And they say, oh, that mutant disease? And they say, not that one. And they say, oh, the weird little bald lady? You get a lot of good Marvel knowledgeable fans knowing a lot of stuff about X-Men, even if they're not X-Men readers. I don't know that many Ghost Rider fans that are like, let me tell you the deep cuts of Ghost Rider. And so one of the things that happens is a writer like Ben Percy, who has so many great ideas and kind of functionally knows how to interact with an overall history of a character, has an opportunity to reset the book by not making it about canon, but making it about a digestible vibe. Instead of worrying about reinventing the Ghost Rider and repurposing the ideas of the Spirit of Vengeance, I feel like Ben Percy has found his stride at Marvel, fan of his Wolverine and X-Force as I am, I think by saying Ghost Rider is a fear. It's a sense of scare. It's not a group of characters and it's not necessarily the battle for the keys to hell, though that is very interesting. By making Ghost Rider anyone on a motorcycle riding through any town, by making this sort of the incredible Hulk Bill Bixby traveling town to town of motorcycle riding flaming skull hellmen, it's given the character an opportunity to be something new because, you know, Robbie is far more fabulous. Just visually, defiantly, having such a definitive culture, you know, 
he is a recognizable character. Even some of the upstarts like Kushala. But who is Johnny Blaze? And what makes Johnny Blaze not Dan Ketch? At this point, he's the veteran of Marvel horror. And that does mean something. I I feel like, yeah, I, I'm buying this. I'm into it because this character who has this longstanding history is being given essentially exactly what you said, a new vibe. And the fact that we have these other characters that can also function as Ghost Riders that can do other stuff, but it's a little more interesting to see them in that capacity. Uh, even just the idea that their mode of transportation is different and is a little more universal. All of these things, we, we've got enough Ghost Rider characters that there's other things we can do with that name. Can we do anything with Johnny? That's really what we're finding out right now. I think the answer is yes. I think Percy's really succeeding. We took a hard turn at issue 250. A little surprised, as you mentioned, that they didn't market a little and market out a little bit more, but this could be an entirely new direction for him to go in for quite a while. And by thinking about where Ghost Rider might be going, I have to wonder how many classic Ghost Rider fans are still actively reading comics? How many fans of the more problematic, flawed, not collected, not reprinted, not readily available material are saying, nope, nope, I need all that canon. I think it's a little bit more likely that people like the good parts and are able to negotiate away the bad parts. And when it's a character like Daredevil, there's so much Daredevil, so readily available, so quickly accessible through apps, through omnibus editions, through the epic collections. There is a way to engage with that material accessibly. And so you wind up with people that are very attached to elements of each run. But with Ghost Rider and Punisher generally being a little bit more oversaturated at the times of their peak. And so perhaps while a lot of that material is available, it's maybe not celebrated in overall canon the way so much of Daredevil winds up in so many other titles like Jessica Jones and I almost said Kingpin, but I guess Kingpin technically belongs to Spider-Man, but you know, we know where he belongs. So, and that's, you know, with Mary. So I'm eager because if Marvel is saying, yeah, but what is the Johnny Blaze fan of the 1970s? We don't still have motorcycle stuntmen in the same way. Sure, there's Mr. Pink, but it's not the same thing. So I think Marvel's poised themselves to see these characters go a flurry of successful ways. It's just really a matter of how are they going to follow through? I originally thought Daredevil was doing his own thing and Punisher and Ghost Rider were a little bit more aligned, but I think now that Daredevil and Punisher are clearly intertwined, but Ghost Rider is doing something brave and that's having a vibe, not an obsessive canon, and I'm excited for it. We're getting Crypt of Shadows uh, coming up next week. We are now into Midnight Suns. We had a really successful launch of the first horror MCU special with Werewolf by Night. We read a really fantastic Werewolf by Night Infinity comic last week. There's cool stuff happening in Marvel horror, and Johnny Blades is an iconic name for Marvel horror, which uh, as a whole is not uh, an iconic brand within this company. It's not the same way that like street-level characters like Daredevil are. But I think we're a little bit poised for a revolution, and while I don't necessarily see Johnny as being like the figurehead of that, because he is such an old, long-standing character, I think it is right to find something solid to do with him. I'm really interested in seeing what characters like Kushala and Robbie 
Reyes can carry as more forefront characters, but Johnny is in his own way an iconic character. And if we're doing new stuff with this particular genre in Marvel, I do want to see him settled somewhere. And I think this is doing that work. It's such an exciting time to see Marvel try and push forward on so many new grounds with so many characters. And we can definitely see that reverberating through the pages across the line with things like Judgment Day, really pushing at least mechanisms of the Marvel Universe to new places, if not characters. We're seeing that in the upcoming previews, kind of like trying to tie the X-Men and Spider-Man back together. That's really interesting. And I think that Marvel is ready for a shakeup, even if there was Secret Wars in the middle. I feel like we've been riding out through the Age of Heroes for a really long time, and I can see traces of bold new ideas breaking through, and I'm really excited to see where they go. I feel exactly the same way. We've really set up that we're riding out the end of this year, especially with Judgment Day. Cool stuff is happening, but we we know that this event is all sort of wrapping up in December, and then 2023 feels very open, and like we know big stuff is coming, but we don't know what a lot of it is going to be. But just from looking at what we read week to week, I'm really excited about the possibilities. And until we come back to take a look at the future of the Marvel Universe and a number of Judgment Day specials, as well as an amazing MC2 you won't want to miss, TK, where can everybody find you? You guys know you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And on this show for those glorious MC2 Mondays and Fridays and Wednesdays as well, talking about books like these whenever I get the chance. You guys can find me all over this network all of the days. You can also find me on our partner network along with this guy and the cast of X's for Podcast at Hubs Plus Network on YouTube, where if you like the stuff Daredevil stuff here, you heard stuff stuff, you can check it out with me and Tori Sheehan over on the Billy Club, our examination of Daredevil, taking a look at classic stories and jumping forward to examine some exciting modern Daredevil news and appearances. If you want to know more about my original work, check it out at KidRiotComics.com as well as in the Young Men in Love Anthology with some fucking phenomenal amazing talent. I can't believe I get to be in a book with all of those amazing guys. It's incredible. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, the beast of the fist is the enemy of the fist of the beast, but technically the fist of the beast works for the hand, while at one point, I believe, the beast of the fist was connected to the chaste? Where did they chase him to? So what happened is, when the canister broke and blinded Matt, some leaked into the sewer and actually turned the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And that's why it's the Foot Clan instead of the Hand. And that's why it's Splinter off of a stick and Shredder uses traditional ninja weapons. So they chased him right into the sewers and they became the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And that's a real thing. So is Krang the Beast? Okay, I accept it because I mostly just, as a kid thought Krang looked like a jar of baby food. I was obsessed with Krang. I was like, I just want to be a brain with tentacles that pilots a giant dude around and talk shit all day. And I still aspire to that. So just give me time, ladies and gentlemen. And we'll see ya. 